Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Peter and John arrested. While they were speaking to the people, the priest, and the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them, because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Peter and John faced the Jewish leadership. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The boldness of the disciples. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. Thanks, Donigo. Now, friends, we live in a religiously pluralistic society. Uh, now, what this means, religious pluralism is this idea in our society that we uh, should worship whomever, we should be able to worship whomever we want. And each person has the right uh, to their own religious beliefs. And the idea that naturally flows from that is that these, all these different belief systems can coexist within our society quite happily. But this stands in pretty stark contrast to countries like, um, you know, Saudi Arabia or Iran or places like the Maldives, for example, where Islam is the state religion. So we have a pluralistic society, they have a, a single religion society. Now, in the constitution of the Maldives, for example, um, it expressly declares that Islam is to be the state religion and that promoting any other belief system other than Islam is actually a criminal offence in a country like that. And then in addition to having regular police, uh, these places have um, uh, religious police forces that monitor and enforce uh, the sort of Islamic morality within the society. But that's not where we live, is it? We, we live in a pluralistic society, and that means that any belief system, more or less, is allowed. And what this does is it creates a culture where, because every belief system is valid, we also be start believing that every belief system is equally true that they are equally valid ways of, uh, you know, getting to heaven, to enter this eternal afterlife uh, of joy and happiness. 
And so as a society, we pretty much believe that whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Sikh or whatever, these are just different ways up the divine mountain, if you like. These are uh, just different ways to get to the top of the God mountain where there is eternal happiness and joy. And so if you want to worship Allah or Vishnu or Horus or Jesus, it doesn't really matter as long as we all love each other and you're not hurting anyone uh, that's basically, and you're basically leaving the world in a better place, then that's all equally valid. You have succeeded then at life's quest. The famous boxer Muhammad Ali captures this um, idea and he, and he says this in, uh, in one of his interviews. He says, we all have the same God, we just serve him differently. So just like rivers, lakes, ponds, streams and oceans all have different names, they all contain water. And so do religions have different names and they all contain truth expressed in a different way, in different forms and at different times. And that's pretty much the value system we subscribe to as a society. But friends, I want to show you today that this belief, this tightly held societal value, if you like, doesn't actually make any sense when you look at, uh, when you look at what each of these individual religions actually believe. And in fact, all religions are exclusive in some way. Each uh, belief system makes exclusive claims that necessarily exclude all other religious beliefs from being true. And then I'd like to put forward the Christian case and finally show you or give you three reasons why I think the Christian case is the strongest option out of the many different options we have. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's look, uh, let, let's dig in. Now firstly then I want to look at uh, the exclusivity of all um, religion, uh, religious options. The reality is that all religious systems are exclusive in some way. The idea that all religions are just different ways up the same God mountain actually fails to deal with any of the beliefs of the religious systems themselves. It is a value in our society that, um, you know, that every belief system is equally valid but it, uh, and that they all kind of do this, this uh, spirituality thing well. But that's actually very ignorant of what each belief system believes because each religion is exclusive in some way. So let's take a couple of different options. Let's start with the uh, Islamic religion. Now, Islam emphasizes the oneness of their God, Allah. And in the Islamic declaration of faith, called the, uh, called the Shahada, uh, it, it reads like this. It says, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And in Islam, traditionally at least, if you believed in any other God, a different God, if you converted in any sort of way, the punishment for that is death. Well, actually, men and women were treated slightly differently if they converted to another religion, depending on which um, kind of subset of Islam you fell in. In most places, men were given somewhere between three and ten days to recant, to change their belief system, after which they would be put to death. But women, in many cases, um, were also executed. They were given the same treatment or they were put in solitary confinement and taken out every three days and beaten until they eventually recanted. Those were your options. And um, if you want to read more about that, I highly recommend to you, there's a book printed by the University of Cambridge uh, Press called Crime and Punishment in Islamic Law. Uh, it's by Rudolf Peters, so you can read some more about that if you like. 
The point is that Islam is exclusive. You can't say that Islam sits, uh, believes that any of the other options are fine. But Judaism uh, is no different. Even from our text that we read today, we saw here Peter and John, these two disciples, apostles, preaching about Jesus, and they were running into the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish uh, leaders of the day. And the Jews had this desire for a Messiah, and that Jesus actually, uh, so the issue was that that John and Peter were, were proclaiming that Jesus was this Messiah, and the Jewish leaders of the day did not recognize them. So he was this prophesied saviour, but because the leaders didn't recognise him, they ultimately killed Jesus for claiming to be God's son. And then when, um, when these two apostles are speaking in the, in the space where these religious leaders had uh, authority over, they wanted to have them arrested, thrown in jail and so on. And so they too believe that there's only one God and you can't, you know, not every God is equally valid. Judaism is exclusive. And so is Buddhism. In Buddhism, there is no God figure. Uh, The point is, in Buddhism, that you are to follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. And the whole Buddhistic system is based around the fact that you should try and get rid of all desire in your life. So, uh, the Buddhist believes that the reason we suffer as human beings, the reason we go through difficult times, is because human beings have desire. And so Buddhism uh, says that the only way you can reach enlightenment is to get rid of all your desire. And so Buddhism actually rejects all other religions because the desire in another religion to worship a god is by definition a desire. So you can't desire to worship God and get rid of all desire. And so, so in that way, Buddhism says you have to abandon all other belief in order to be, uh, to, to reach enlightenment. The same is true of atheism. Atheism is the exclusive belief that there is no God, and so uh, you have to reject all other gods, and therefore atheism itself is exclusive. And the final one I want to think about this morning is Hinduism, which uh, Hinduism famously has, you know, 300 million different gods. Uh, In Hinduism, the belief is that everything is God and that God is in everything. And in some ways, um, the Hindu belief system is totally non-exclusive in that it accepts all forms of of faith and all religious paths. And in fact, one of the ancient Vedic texts says that God is truth and that uh, wise people refer to this truth by many different names. And so Hindus believe that there is no one religion that is exclusively true and that all major faiths in some way um, capture the truth of this eternal, universal, all-encompassing truth and that there are many paths to seek this kind of religious understanding and enlightenment. And in some ways, Hinduism is very similar to the societal belief that we have today. But there is a logical contradiction here. If Hinduism says that every religion is true, then it cannot itself be true because every other religion says only it is true. Do you see that? Uh, You can't say that all of this is true when all of this says that's false, right? That doesn't work. So in saying that Hinduism uh, is so inclusive, it actually ends up excluding itself from its own system and it doesn't make sense. Now that's all very interesting and perhaps boring to you, but um, the point is this. Every belief system 
is in some way exclusive. So the question is not whether it's okay to be exclusive in terms of what we believe. The question is which kind of exclusion we should choose to believe in. The question is not whether it's okay to believe in an exclusive God, but rather which exclusive God you should trust in. And so I'd like to now make the case for Christianity, that Jesus is the only way. And this is where I think our Bible passage from today is, uh, is incredibly helpful. And what happens in this passage is we have this altercation between the religious leaders of the day and two of Jesus' main followers. Now these men, uh, Peter and John, they were disciples of Jesus. They had travelled with him for a number of years at this point. They were part of his inner circle of friends. They had been present when Jesus um, performed many miracles, healed people, actually even brought people back from the dead and so on. And they'd been the recipients of Jesus' teaching for many years. They'd listened to his words and as they followed him, they became convinced that Jesus was this Messiah that the Jewish nation had been looking for. Now, this is a term we use all the time in Christian circles, Messiah, uh, but it's not one we often define. So I'd like to just spend a, a Two seconds talking about that. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word which means the promised saviour. You know, it, it's, it comes from the Old Testament times in the Bible, in the Jewish scriptures, uh, where there were many of these prophecies of the promised king, this promised Messiah who would one day come and save God's people. Now, what the Jewish people of the day believed is that they would, uh, is that this Messiah would come and actually save them physically from the Roman nation who had occupied Jewish territory at the time. So the, the Israel as a nation was under the occupation of Rome, and many Jews at the time believed that this Messiah would come and save them from the enemy nation that is Rome out there. But that's not actually what the Old Testament story teaches us. The Messiah wasn't coming to save people from Rome, the physical enemy out there. He was coming to save people from the enemy in here, inside each of us. Now the whole point that the Old Testament makes is when you read it, you quickly come to realise that it is a story with a start and a middle, but that has no end. And the Old Testament is about the problem that humanity has and how God is going to fix that. And the story goes like this, that God is the one who made the world and he made it good and he gave our ancestors, Adam and Eve, one rule, a very simple rule and he said in effect, you know, here's this garden, this beautiful place, look at all the wonderful trees, all the fruit I give you to eat from but you have one rule, you can eat from any of those trees except the one in the middle of the garden and this tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you see, God knew that if they ate from this tree, they would experience and know and actually become uh, evil in and of themselves. It's not so much that the fruit of this tree was evil, but that in choosing to, to disobey God's rule, they committed evil. And in that way, they, they came to know it experientially. And so in disobeying God, they, they became evil. They were stained with evil. And they did. They actually chose to disobey God. And when that happened, something pretty drastic, pretty significant, pretty monumental, in fact, happened. Sin came into the world. Now, sin is this idea that we uh, miss the mark of what God expects of us. So God expects of the people that he made perfection. 
And sin is the stain that evil leaves on us. And when, when we sin, when we do something wrong against God's law, when we fail to do the right thing, we get, it's like a dab, a blob of paint that gets put on us and we get ever more dirty as we go through life. But the problem is not so much that the stain is on the outside that we can wash it off, but that this stain is on our hearts on our innermost being, and we have this kind of sin enemy inside us. And there is nothing that we can do to wash it off. And that's a pretty big problem. Because the Bible says that when we have sin in us, you know, God is so holy and so pure and so righteous that He cannot be in the presence of sin. And what we were made to be in a relationship with God, And so we have this desire to be in relationship with God, but we can't get to Him because we've got the stain of sin in us. And this is a problem. And there's nothing we can do to get rid of it. And so what we tend to do is we try to hide from this sin that's inside, to cover it up, because we can't get rid of it. And actually, in the book of Genesis, that's exactly what Adam and Eve does. They try to cover it up. They go and make clothes for themselves to hide themselves from God's eyes. And the thing is, because God is so holy and perfect, sin cannot be in His presence. A couple of leaves that make clothes are not going to work. And as soon as Adam and Eve knew they were tainted by sin, they instinctively knew that they could not be in God's presence. And I find this a very compelling reason to believe that the Bible is true, because I think this is true of all of us as well. If you quiet down and you pay attention to the true deepest desires in your heart and when you and I actually genuinely reflect on who we are and the things that we do in this life, the things that no one else sees, when we do that, when we're left with our own thoughts, you know, when Optus stops working and you can't be distracted by your phone anymore, when we're left alone with just our own thoughts, in those moments, if we are honest with ourselves about who we are and what we want, about the things we've done, about the hurts that we've caused, I think you and I experience the same thing that Adam and Eve did back then. Shame and guilt. I think that's true because that's how it is for me. And I think if you're honest with yourself, that's probably how it is for you. We want to hide. We deeply, instinctively feel the need to cover our shame. And that shame exists because of this stain of sin on us. We know we've kind of eaten the forbidden fruit, if you like. And we have failed to live up to God's standard. And the funny thing is, we know this deep inside, even if we don't believe in the Christian God. We feel this experientially, even if we don't know God personally. And so we try to hide from this feeling. And I think the thing that most often we use to hide from this feeling is by getting distracted. Like, that's how we do it. We cover it up by getting distracted by entertainments and pleasures and those sorts of things. I think the primary way that we in the Western world deal with this deep-seated dissatisfaction and shame that we have is through things like Instagram and Netflix and sport and TikTok. 
Our shame is covered up by us taking our attention away from it. We just distract ourselves until the thing that we're distracting ourselves with stops working and then we choose the next thing to distract ourselves. And the truth is we have the same issue that Adam and Eve had. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament story, God promises, he says, (coughs) I know that you cannot wash away this stain of sin, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send someone who will wash away this sin from you. I will send someone who can clean you, who can save you, who can wash you from within. And that person is this Messiah, this promised deliverer who would one day come. And when the Old Testament ends, the deliverer has not actually shown up. But we get glimpses of what this Messiah is going to be like. The Old Testament tells us that he's going to be righteous. He's going to live this perfect life. The, the prophet Isaiah says he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that was on us would be put on him. And by his wounds we would be healed. And you may recognize these words because we sing this in Christmas time and our Christmas carols. This is a prophecy about this Messiah who would come. The one who would suffer in our place and take our sin, our iniquities on himself so that we can be free. And in our Bible passage today, the disciple Peter says to the religious leaders, Jesus is that man, that long-awaited saviour, that Messiah man, he is the one. He's the one who's come and taken our sins on himself, but you crushed him, you destroyed him, you crucified him, you put him to death, but he is the Messiah. He's the one who would save us. And Peter makes an astounding claim in verse 12, and he says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And that sin and that shame that lives in our hearts can only be washed by Him. That is the central core belief of Christianity. It is entirely exclusive. But at the same time, it is entirely inclusive in that it is available to anyone who would simply come and trust in Jesus to cover up and to wash away that shame. He died for our sins. The punishment that was on us for our iniquities was put on him and he died in our place. And that is a good thing because the Bible says that if you don't get washed... If you take your stain of sin with you when you die, you will eternally be separated from God. None of the other options will save you. That stain that is on your heart disqualifies all of us eternally from being in God's presence. And if we want to be in God's presence in heaven, so to speak, then we need to have our sins paid for, our stain washed clean. And the only way that can happen is if we put our trust in Jesus, realizing that we have a problem, that we need to be washed clean, coming to grips with that shame that lives in us and then turning to Jesus and saying, please, Lord, I want you to clean me because I know I can't wash myself. I need you, Jesus, to take away my sin, my stain, and then trusting that he would. And then in response to that, choosing to live for him, to leave the old life behind and to live for him instead. It is that simple 
and that complex. It starts with a simple prayer and is completed in a life dedicated to Christ. But the Bible is clear, there is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ, God's Son. On your own, you cannot get up the God mountain. You cannot come to God the Father on your own. You cannot wash yourself. So my question to you, friends, is will you come? Will you today leave beyond your old life and follow Jesus instead? Will you commit to living for him as the only way into heaven, as the only way uh, up the mountain? Will you follow him, trusting that he will take away your stain of sin? If you want to do this today, then I want to encourage you to talk to the person who invited you to come. Maybe that's the person uh, next to you right now, maybe they're somewhere else around here, but to make this commitment. And then after the service, as you and your friend uh, you know, uh, sit over lunch, talk about that. Or you can come and talk to me and we'll get you on the road. We'll get you uh, on the road to take your next step with Jesus as well. Because he really is the only way into, into heaven. Now, I want to make just one final point. You know, we've seen that, that Christianity is just as exclusive as all the other options. Uh, it is an exclusive claim to say that there is no other name by which men can be saved, right? That's pretty exclusive. So why should you believe the Christian claim? And I want to give you just three quick reasons why I think Christianity is the most compelling of all the cases. Why should you believe that Christianity's exclusiveness is the one? So, the first is this. The willingness of Christians to die. That's not the one. This one. There we go. The willingness of Christians to die for their belief. Christianity has at its core a very remarkable story about the apostles, these disciples of Jesus who, who came to follow him. Now, these were ordinary people. <clears throat> uh, even in our text today, we saw that they were untrained and uneducated. They were just ordinary people like you and me. They were the first ones uh, to follow Jesus. But if you go to, uh, to the Gospels, if you read the stories of what they were like, you see that these same people, these same two people, John and Peter, when Jesus was arrested, they ran away. They fled the scene. They were like, well, he's going to die. I don't want to be part of that. And they scarpered. We know from the Bible that this Peter, who is loudly proclaiming here that Jesus is the only way to be saved, actually abandoned Jesus and denied that he ever knew him while Jesus was on trial. And here, he's actually courageously facing challenge after challenge, and he would actually eventually be killed for his faith willingly. Now, I think there's only one reason why that can be the case. And that is that Peter knew that Jesus actually came back from the dead. You know, people are willing to die for what they believe is true. But no one is willing to die for what they know to be false. So if the disciples, the apostles made up this religion, this idea that Jesus, you know, came back from the dead, they would not have gone with that story all the way to the end and died for what they knew to be false. These men who were cowards changed their way so radically that they were willing to die for Jesus. And all throughout the ages, Christians again and again and again have been martyred for their faith. 
thrown to the lions, covered in oil and set on fire. The people we're collecting money for later on in, this, uh, in, in our service here, their, their houses and things are burnt up because they believe in Jesus. It would be far easier just to recant. But again and again and again, Christians are willing to die for what they know to be true. I think that is incredible proof that the Holy Spirit changes people from the inside. That's option one, or reason one. Reason two, the Holy Spirit's changing power. You know, imagine having a superpower that makes your life better. What Christianity says is that's actually what happens when we become followers of Jesus, when we follow him. We get the Holy Spirit and he comes and lives inside us. That's what Jesus taught. And if you hang around Christian people long enough, you will hear of stories of how believing in Jesus has radically changed their lives for the better. The Holy Spirit empowers people to overcome challenges, leave addiction, give up alcohol, you know, become more caring and loving. Uh, again and again and again, hardened criminals change their lives because they come to know Jesus. Jesus when we follow him and his spirit comes and lives inside us, changes us like nothing else can. And every generation of Christian, right from the earliest days of the church up until this day, attest to this. We literally have 2,000 years of evidence that it is true that the Holy Spirit changes people from the inside. And I think that's pretty compelling. And then finally, I think Christianity is the only religious system that makes sense of the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. We all wonder why bad things happen. But Christianity is the only religion that gives me a satisfying answer to this question. Firstly, it gives me a reason for why suffering exists. Sin. Only Christianity and Judaism actually has this view, that the reason we do bad things is because we all have that stain of sin in our hearts, that our hearts have been crookedly broken and we pursue bad things because we need to be fixed from the inside. The Bible also teaches that sin not only breaks the hearts of the people that live here, but the actual world itself. The world has a system, but that system is broken, and that is broken because of sin. And the best that we can do is to cover up or distract ourselves from this brokenness. And Christianity tells us why people do bad things, why even good people do bad things, why we cannot help ourselves but break the rules, even the rules we set for ourselves in our lives. Christianity is the only religion that teaches and explains that to me. Secondly, it's the only religion that gives me a sure hope that this suffering will one day end. You know, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes back, when enough time has passed and his message has gone out to the whole world, he will finally wipe away every sin. And he's going to remake the world into a whole place. And at that time, all suffering will end. And everything bad will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire so that we know that even if suffering is real today, Jesus himself went through the worst of that suffering when he died on the cross. He took our suffering with him as well. And so God is not distant in our suffering. God understands our suffering. In fact, he came to fix our suffering by dealing with the deeper issue, which is sin. And Christianity is the only religion that gives me hope and strength in suffering today. You see, the Christian knows that 
any suffering we undergo is not because God is angry at us. We know that any suffering we undergo is not because God is punishing us for our sins. That has already been taken on by Jesus. So that means that every suffering that we go through today actually has meaning and purpose and isn't necessarily a bad thing. It changes us and shapes us and turns us into more holy people. Our suffering has meaning and only the Christian has capacity to see it that way. The Hindu says that's karma. You deserve it for something you did in this life or the previous life. The Buddha says the reason you're suffering is just because you desire stuff. And I find that singularly unsatisfying. The atheist says, now it's just random. That's even less satisfying, you know. Islam says it's because God is angry at you. But only Christianity says that suffering has meaning and is shaping you into the person that God wants you to be. And I think those are pretty compelling reasons for why I think Christianity's exclusive claim far uh, exceeds the exclusive claims of the others. So we have three strong reasons to accept it. The apostles and Christians have been willing to die for years. The Holy Spirit has been positively changing people for the last 2,000 years and Christianity is the only religion that can adequately deal with the problem of pain. We've seen that every belief system is exclusive. We've seen the case that Christianity makes and we've seen the three reasons why I think Christianity's case are the strongest. The question is, what are you going to do with that? What is your next step? Will you today come and find salvation in the only name under heaven by which people can be saved? Will you turn to this, this uh, Messiah to deal not with the enemy out there, but the enemy that lives in here? Will you today come and be convinced by the exclusive claims of Christianity and come and bend your knee before Jesus? Will you today start living for him? Will you come and find a new life with Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for what we have had the opportunity to think about today. And I want to pray that you will use this uh, to shape each and every one of us here, to give us reasons for the hope that we have, Lord, we pray that you will change our hearts, that we will not leave you today the same, and that as these things um, sort of ruminate uh, within us and, and change us from the inside, that we will come to deeply and even ever more deeply trust in you. And I want to pray that you will open our hearts to receive you perhaps for the first time or perhaps to see you again in a new light today. And I pray that you will change us from the inside. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.